Formosa Files is sponsored by the Frank C. Chen Cultural Foundation. Frank Chen, Chen Qi Tuan, served as the mayor of Kaohsiung City from 1960 to 1968 and founded the Kaohsiung Medical College. Formosa Files. You're listening to Formosa Files. I'm John Ross. I'm Eric Michael Smith, and this is exciting stuff, people. October 1st, 1949. We all know what happened there. Beijing. It's once again the capital of China, Mao Zedong's China, and he is standing atop Tiananmen Square, Gate of Heavenly Peace, and declares the founding of the People's Republic of China, the PRC. And the next week... His PLA army invades Tibet, and mm -hmm. uh, elsewhere, the troops are mopping up the remnants of the KMT. However, Mao is uh, looking across the water, and he's got his eyes set on conquering Taiwan. Yeah, he's come a long way. The Chinese Communist Party, too, from its founding back 100 years ago, 1921, mm. in Shanghai. But I want to go back to a rock bottom for the communists and Mao, and from this, they would rise. And this is what the CCP credited as their uh, creation story. It's 1934 and Chiang Kai-shek's nationalists are tightening the noose. They're waging a series of campaigns to crush the communists in the Chinese Soviet Republic. Okay, the Chinese Soviet Republic. As I recall, that was a communist-controlled territory in the hills of western Fujian province and then also a bit of neighboring Jiangxi province. They had yeah. uh, taken over that and most of the local people had gotten on the side of the communists, right? And they declared their little republic. Yes, there were a few of these so-called Soviets around China. This is the important one. They're surrounded. The, the communists break out and they make an epic retreat. A long retreat, which will take a year. Oh, of course, you're talking about the Long March. The Long March, and it's well-named. Thousands of miles, and they're hard miles too. So from China's southeast in October of 34, west into Tibetan lands, and then north to what will be the CCP wartime capital of Yan'an. About 100,000 communists, soldiers and civilians, set off. But they were decimated. Decimated by fighting with nationalist troops and local warlords. And then there was starvation, freezing weather, illness. Only about 8,000 of the 100,000 made it. 8,000 out of 100,000? Not good, huh? Yeah, wow. It was during the Long March that Mao ascended to power. Mm. In future years, Long March veterans will be venerated, a special elite. And the leaders of the Long March are a kind of communist royalty. Right. China's current leader for life, it appears, Xi Jinping, he happens to be the son of a Long March veteran. Mm -hmm. But there is a Taiwan connection to the Long March that most people have never heard about. And as far mm -hmm. as we know, there's just one Taiwanese person who was part of of the Great March, but he's a very important figure and he's going to play a major part in today's story. His name was Tsai Xiaochen. So what do we know about this Tsai fellow? He was born in 1906, I think, from Zhanghua County, that's in central Taiwan. He left Taiwan in his late teens to attend Shanghai University. He studied at the sociology department. It was a new school founded by the communists and the nationalists, then in a precarious uh, alliance. Right. And they were looking to uh, have a school develop uh, future leaders. The college, especially the uh, sociology department, is a hotbed of leftists. And uh, he's gradually recruited 
and uh, becomes deeply involved in communist organizing. Unfortunately for uh, him and his buddies, uh, there's a nationalist purge of communists in 1927. The university closes. Tsai comes back to Taiwan. He's involved in communist activities here, propaganda work, but he's arrested by the Japanese, spends most of 28 in prison, I think. So, yeah, we have to remember that at that time, Taiwan was still a colony of Japan, but this time rather settled into its Japanese ways. Mm -hmm. He slips back into China and he's teaching. He ends up in the Fujian Jiangxi communist area, this Soviet area. He becomes a member of the Central Committee, and he's one of the uh, the men who flees when uh, the nationalists encircle them in 1934. He's he's on the long march. So we're talking about a Han Chinese individual who technically was a subject of the Japanese Empire. Mm. So do we know anything about his time during the march? Did he did he write anything about his experience? Yeah, he wrote some memoirs later. He he paints a very dark picture of this time. Well, with that many people being eliminated from hostile elements be it weather or the nationalists. Yeah, it sounds like a pretty desperate time. Yeah, and the, the living aren't too happy. They're desperately homesick uh, mm. uh, and poor spirits. They they didn't realize it was going to be a year. So at the time, the long march didn't feel as heroic as it would later come to be. People suffering, longing for home, fighting. And he suffered too. Uh, he lost his wife and uh, a pair of twins on the march. Oh, sad. And okay, this is when Mao is uh, developing his uh, his power and, and ascending, as you noted. Did Tsai have anything to say about the future chairman, Mao? Tsai, yeah, he says Mao is quite personable, but he's also also seems callous, indifferent to suffering. Okay. And lazy. Tsai says that Mao did little other than sit on his stretcher and read Journey to the West and Romance of the Three Kingdoms. Okay. Uh, Journey to the West is that book where they've got the the monkey king and the the pig and and all of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then the romance is all the three kingdoms that were fighting each other. So uh, this is not, he's not reading the art of war. He's hes not reading Chinese propaganda. No, he's, and he's being carried along. He's not walking. He's not doing the hiking. He's being carried. He's carried on a stretcher. Yeah. He's, wow. he's, he's got a sore foot or something. Yeah. They probably don't really uh, broadcast that part of the long march too much mm. anymore, do they? No. So uh, yeah, the, the fact that he's not reading a revolutionary material is interesting because you've talked to me before about. Mao's just uh, seemingly like epic love of drama books. Yeah, yeah, we'll we'll hear more about this in later episodes. Yes, it's kind of bizarre. Anyway, mm. so uh, Tai Mao and those other survivors, uh, eight thousand roughly people, they reach the northwest and they set up a base. And then kind of luck intervenes for them. Uh, Mm. The Japanese invasion happens and the nationalists, they have to go fight the Japanese. And that gives the communists a chance to consolidate their their area. Yes, and they're close to the border with the Soviet Union so Mm. they can get uh, supplies. During the war, Tsai puts his Japanese to good use. He's fluent in Japanese. So he works uh, interrogating Japanese prisoners and such. After the war, he's sent to uh, his native country, you know, to Taiwan to establish and run underground networks. 
So when we say after the war, we just mean... Ah, good point, because we've got the Second World War and we've got the Civil War. Okay, 1946, uh, just after the um, Second World War. Right. So the the Second World War had been settled, but the nationalist communist war had not been settled yet. Yes. So he's he's off to Taiwan to lay the groundwork for communist takeover. Okay, so let's go back to Mao Zedong Mm. in Tiananmen Square real quick here. October 1st, 1949, the official founding of the PRC. And Mao has literally, and his people have, have literally been fighting for decades. Yeah. He's, he's got China now, but he, he's not going to take a break. He's determined to grab Taiwan. Yeah, the CCP leadership uh, had already been planning an attack through the summer and autumn. They're getting ready and they're set up for a winter campaign. Okay, so we're talking so a few about- months, A few months after Mao declaring the PRC. Yeah. So a few months later, they're ready to, to attack. So, And we're talking about an invasion of actual Taiwan, right? Not just taking Jinmen or Penghu or something like this. Correct. The Taiwan mainland. Okay, but I have a question. The nationalists had moved over to Taiwan and they took all their planes and they took all their boats. So Mao doesn't have a navy. Mao doesn't have an air force. How is he planning on invading without these key elements that you kind of need to move people? Oh, Eric, you're a, you're, you're too negative. Uh, where there's a will, there's a way. <laughs> okay. Um, well, he's hoping for air and naval support from the Soviet Union. Okay. Mao's number two has already been in Moscow asking Stalin for help. And Mao, in late uh, 49, he goes there too. And he's, uh, he's asking Stalin in person, help us take Taiwan. Okay. So Mao is actually speaking to Stalin, uh, begging essentially for help. Mm, yeah. And what did the man of steel have to say? Uh, he didn't want direct involvement. Uh, he's worried about kicking off World War Three, <laughs> but he offered to help the Chinese build up an air force and navy. He's not exactly generous, though. His Chinese comrades need to pay for all the ships and planes. They don't have money, so it's by loans and grain. It's an enormous expense. Yeah, and you've got uh, an extremely hungry, impoverished China looking to recover from decades and decades of war. And the Chinese Communist Party is immediately spending the resources that they have in a bid to hurry up and try to take Taiwan. Yeah, the lukewarm Soviet response at least buys Taiwan some valuable time. Yeah. So the deadline for invasion is pushed back from the winter of 49 to the summer of 1950. So uh, we can thank uh, Stalin there for uh, for stalling a bit. <laughs> okay, so it's pushed back to the summer of 1950. That would be for taking Taiwan. But obviously, if you want to take Taiwan, you've got to take uh, those little islands that uh, we still uh, hold, Jinmen, Mazu, those places. Uh, yes. they got to have a plan to take those as uh, places to leapfrog from. Yep. First up is... Jinmen. Jinmen is a small island, and it's literally like just 10 kilometers east mm. of Xiamen in China. Yeah. With mm-hmm. a good pair of binoculars, you could pretty much see the, the coast over there. I've been there. I've seen it with uh, the naked eye. Yeah. Wow. It's about 17 kilometers wide. It's maybe three to 12 kilometers from north to south, narrow in the middle. But yeah, not big. And as as I said, the important thing about Jinmen is where it is, just mm-hmm. 10 kilometers east from Xiamen. So you would think that this would be an easy task. Uh, you're right there, you know, you're just off the coast. It'd be easy to take Jinmen. Ashna's troops are in disarray. Right. They've collapsed over the last 18 months. They see it as a formality. The PLA launch an attack uh, early hours of the morning on uh, October 24th, 1949. Chinese artillery batteries on the mainland, I mean, it's near enough 
enough, you can use artillery on the island. They give covering fire and 10,000 PLA soldiers land on the island. And it's a mm. bloody three-day engagement, fierce artillery, combat, uh, some of it hand-to-hand, you know, close quarters. There are tanks, flamethrowers, very, very bloody. But the nationalists prevail. PLA surrender and uh, thousands dead, thousands of uh, PLA captured. A victory, a rare victory for the nationalists. Wow. But we actually had Chinese troops there on the ground yes. in Jinmen. Mm-hmm. And- yeah, what, usually once they're on, it's hard to get them off, right. isn't it? But, right. Yeah. Chiang Kai-shek's nationalist managed to repulse the attack, but the communists are doing quite well in other parts of China. Yeah, Chiang Kai-shek is in southwest China at this time, but not for much longer. He he wanted to make the southwestern province of Yunnan a bastion from which to resist the advancing communists. Right. We in Taiwan, we know the date of 1949, but many don't to realize that Chiang Kai-shek didn't come over until pretty much the last days of 1949. Mm. So Chiang yeah. Kai-shek wants to use Yunnan and make it a little territory. And he's thinking, mm. if I can hold on to this area, I'll have a way of slowly retaking. But the governor of Yunnan has another idea. Yeah. Well, actually, uh, he wanted to declare independence um, uh, with American backing, but the Americans uh, didn't go along with it. He didn't want the nationalists there. He uh, handed the province over to the communists on uh, December 9th, 1949. There you go. So that would be the last time that Chiang Kai-shek would be in China. Yeah. The next day, he flew from the wartime capital of uh, Chongqing to Taipei, uh, stopped off briefly in Chengdu, which was the KMT capital, uh, the last one. He had lunch, his last meal in China. He boards an airplane. The last time he would stand on Chinese soil. Wow. One wonders if he uh, recognized the significance of that moment at that moment. I guess we'll never know. And the next month, Mao and the CCP are given a tremendous boost. Okay. On January 5th, 1950, the American government washed its hands of Chiang Kai-shek and uh, the KMT. President Truman, he issued a press statement to the effect that the United States would not intervene, would not provide military assistance to to the nationalists. Okay, so we all know that uh, history ended up differently, right? But- There was a, a very brief period where the administration of Truman basically mm. said, uh, sorry, Taiwan, you're on your own. And also very explicitly told China and the world that they would not help out. The press release, here it is. I've got it here. It's it, it's insane. It actually says, the United States has no desire to obtain special rights or privileges or to establish military bases on Formosa at this time, nor does it have any intention of utilizing its armed forces to intervene in the present situation. The United States government will not pursue a course which will lead to involvement in the civil conflict in China. Also, the U.S. government will not provide military aid or advice to Chinese forces on Formosa. That is very, Ooh. very brutally... I That's unusually you... blunt for a yeah. press statement, isn't it? <laughs> Ouch! We'll Ouch. give you nothing, we will not help you in any way, and we're not interested as well. Yeah, it, it seems uh, at that moment that the fate of Taiwan is pretty much sealed. It's not a matter of if, but when the communists are going to take Taiwan. Yeah, but okay, let's let's think about the actual idea of invading Taiwan, mm-hmm. right? Because when Taiwan was a Japanese colony during World War II and the Americans were working their way up, you know, MacArthur yeah. coming up for the Philippines, they thought about taking Taiwan and using it as a, 
an yes. aircraft carrier to, you know, fly. And, but in the end, they leapfrogged it for Okinawa. So would the PLA really have been able to do this? Well, they've certainly got sufficient troops and a willingness to take huge losses, mm. but not enough ships and planes to right. conquer Taiwan. So there are two unknowns, though. How much would the Soviets have helped? And more importantly, how much help would they get from their agents in Taiwan? How many defections of nationalist commanders would occur? Could they bring their units over or at least misdirect them so that the communists could get a beachhead? And it's looking possible, thanks to our Taiwanese Long March veteran and his huge network of communist agents in Taiwan. Right. So Mr. Tsai Shaotren has been very mm-hmm. busy after returning to Taiwan. He's a spy master in Taiwan. And mm-hmm. there are a lot of people who are not happy with the nationalists. You could say the conditions are ripe for them to be recruited into yeah. the fold. You know, mm-hmm. China has been taken over. It seems very clear who won the war. So he's talking to commanders. He's talking to generals. So, okay, let's just recap real quick before we continue with Tsai. The Americans have abandoned Taiwan pretty much completely. Taiwan is in turmoil. There's shortages of everything. Inflation is crazy. Disease. There's a flood of mainlander refugees, at least a million. That's right. Total chaos. And also a relatively brutal crackdown. Yeah, so that's February 28th and then the uh, bloody crackdowns in March. So yeah, it's, uh, it's ripe for recruitment, isn't it? And invasion. So Tsai is running hundreds of assets and he's helped build up a network of more than a thousand men. And he's telling the PLA, he's telling Mao that April 1950 is ideal for an invasion. April 1950. I seem to recall that April would be the same month or was the same month that uh, Kashinga successfully invaded Dutch held Taiwan. We've talked about how April is the month to invade Taiwan. It's uh, the only one that's really uh, very suitable current wise wind-wise. This network of agents, you said there's more than a thousand of them. What are they doing and what are they planning on doing? Gathering intelligence, doing sabotage when the moment comes. They're undermining morale and support for the KMT, stirring up the population. There are going to be worker strikes, protests, riots in the the lead up to the invasion. And he's working on high-ranking nationalists, trying to bring them over to the communists, you know? Okay, so Tsai, he managed to get a senior nationalist general. What was the guy's name? Wu Shi. He was the deputy chief minister of defense in Taiwan. He managed to get this high level target to, to come over and say that he would support the armies of Mao if they were to land. Yeah, but uh, the nationalist intelligence agencies are not sitting idly by. They don't want a repeat of what happened on the mainland. They're going hard after uh, spies. They've uncovered a spy ring in Geelong and the spy catchers are working their way up here following the different threads, and these will take them to Tsai in January. He's arrested. Okay, so they got busted. If I put myself in Tsai's shoes, right, yeah. and mm-hmm. imagine that I am a, a devout communist who had everything all set up, ready for invasion, and now I've, I've been arrested. I guess you have the, the heroic suicide, where, you know, you mm. take yourself out and uh, say nothing, or you could um, get ready for being put up against a wall and a uh, fire yeah squad um, taking you out. You could maybe, I don't know, I could stall, I could give false information, try to keep mm-hmm. things going for as long as... 
but then again, I could do uh, the thing that would be the most selfish in a way, and that would be defecting. Yeah. Tsai was an expert interrogator. I mean, he had uh, done this during the war, you know, using his Japanese language skills. He's interrogated countless Japanese prisoners, and uh, he's, he's an experienced intelligence man. He managed to convince his KMT captors that he would defect. Now, while he's uh, pretending to round up other uh, agents. He makes a, a daring escape and he's he's on the run for weeks. Uh, he was eventually cornered and captured back in his hometown area of Jianghua. Okay. So he made an effort. <laughs> he made an effort to be loyal to the cause, but it still didn't work out. So there are records from a couple of books that we have where he was in love, I believe. Yeah, that's what I read in, in Easton's Chinese invasion threat. Yes. So he's captured and the second round of interrogations is, you know, stick and carrot approach. Approach. Mm. The stick is being a bullet, mm -hmm. the carrot being life, financial reward, and, and the freedom of his girlfriend. Oh, and at a job with the uh, ROC military, with the nationalists. That's going to so, be hard to. That's going to be hard to turn down, especially if you truly are in love and you 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 want to save the the person you love. So get your girlfriend free. Yeah. You're going to be okay. And, yeah, he uh, starts singing like a canary. Okay. He, uh, he names names uh, from the highest, like that that general Wushu and. And other high-ranking communists, all the way down to the agents at the bottom. So hundreds of them across the island uh, were rounded up, and then numerous others fled the island, and a few hardcore ones fled into the mountains. <laughs> Do we know what happened to those guys? No, but it's, it would be a fun story to follow up. Wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I wonder if there's still a couple up there, you know, who still think <laughs> that the war is not over. <laughs> okay, so Tsai is done. His network is done. The communist secret army in Taiwan is in ruins. But mm. as we all know from history, Mao is not just going to give up there, is he? No. If he can't use uh, defecting troops and commanders, and if he, he doesn't have detailed maps of the defenses, then he's just going to have to uh, build up a stronger invading force. Well over half a million men, invasion set for the summer of 51. Yeah, uh, as you noted earlier, Mao was not opposed to sacrificing large amounts of people mm. for goals. In fact, he would do that quite uh, a lot through his career. However, that all becomes uh, academic, you could say, on June 25th, 1950, because communist North Korea invades South Korea, and now the American government needs the KMT. They, they yep. need an ally, mm -hmm. and Taiwan is that uh, aircraft carrier I keep talking about. An unsinkable aircraft carrier, yeah. Mm -hmm. So President Truman ordered the 7th Fleet into the strait to protect the island. China's invasion of Taiwan is put on hold and officially called off in October 1950. That's when Chinese troops enter the Korean conflict. Right. So the Korean War lasts three years. So two wars. The Japanese invasion gave the communists the chance to, to regroup, and mm -hmm. the Korean War gave Taiwan uh, a bit of breathing space. Uh, just a little coincidence of history there. Yeah. So That's... the Chinese sent uh, their troops in to help, and obviously that means they didn't have people to invade Taiwan. And the Korean War goes on until, what, 1953. And mm -hmm. that's when Mao Zedong once again will start turning his gaze towards Taiwan. Yes, as soon as the Korean War wraps up, Mao is looking uh, once more at Taiwan and um, he tells his military to prepare. However, that's going to have to be a story for another podcast as we've run out of time here. 
Yeah, this has been fascinating. Uh, great stuff. And uh, we hope you'll join us for uh, the next uh, couple of episodes where we'll continue some of this exciting uh, post-war stuff. Uh, exciting, but with a happy ending. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, with a happy ending. For us. You've been listening to Formosa Files. I'm Eric Michael Smith. I'm John Ross. You can contact us at formosafiles at gmail.com if you like. And uh, thanks for listening. Bye. <laughs>